The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our hosts, Kyle Reiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperforth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. Kyle and Joel, what are your thoughts on fall nitrogen application? I think a big thing on fall application of nitrogen is knowing your soil that you're going to apply it in, right? We look for soil types. We look for soils that can hold nitrogen. Last thing we want to do is a farming community as an advisor or an agronomist is have our product that we apply get somehow moved off that field through the water system and kill fish down in the Gulf. That's not what we want. And so knowing what you have for soil, knowing what the capabilities of holding that are, and then also what are the practices that you have or are going to continue to do in the future. I mean, do you have the capabilities to go out with a side dress machine? Do you not? I mean, those are the practices that are all involved with trying to figure out how we're going to manage and how much to apply. There's some guys that love fall. There's some guys that love spring. And uh, my opinion is apply it when you can put it on and work it in the ground in good conditions. last thing we want to do is put in hydrous on in the fall and not seal up or put it on too early and then leach it down. And, and the other thing is not only just the application of nitrogen is, is important, but also keeping it in the form that we want it. And, and I always suggest stabilizers is, is a great way to do that. You got any opinions on in that? Yeah, I think you got to be careful who you're listening to. Uh, if you're uh, if you're listening to somebody who doesn't get as much rainfall in the fall time, they're going to be pretty culturally accepting of fall nitrogen applications. If you're listening to somebody who uh, who gets quite a bit of rainfall uh, in the fall months, they're going to culturally never really be applying nitrogen. I think the form of nitrogen matters. Certainly, uh, fall ammonia, being that you're injecting it into the soil and it's in the ammonium form, that's a lot more common. Fall urea in the eastern part of Minnesota is basically non-existent, no matter what the price of urea gets to be, because we don't have it in a form that's stable in the soil, and a little bit of rainfall can start to encourage that leaching. I think the biggest aspect when I think about fall application rates is the following three numbers, 503, 532, and 560. And those are the last three corn growers competition winners for the highest yields in the U.S. And when I think about a 500 bushel crop, I don't think it's ever going to be environmentally responsible or economical to put out 500 bushels worth of inputs in the fall. And the expectation for $3 corn is you've either got to produce more of those bushels to make use of that $3.50 corn, or you've got to think about it as input per bushel. And certainly with the genetics that are out there, it's always about being able to be on the right side of that U.S. corn average, if you can be 10, 15 bushels ahead of where everybody else is at in your geography, that's probably going to look like you metering out inputs closer to when the plant needs them. And I just think about that 500 bushel. You can't put all 500 bushels worth of inputs in in the fall. I think two other aspects that we haven't talked about is, is temperature also, right? We always shoot for 50 degrees or less. 50 doesn't mean that the microbes stop working. That means they just slow down. And it's 50 degrees soil temp, not 50 degree air temp. It's not 50 degrees at night only. It's 50 degrees at soil temp. So we have to be conscious of 50 degrees, and we don't want to see any big fluctuations up or, or below. One of the guys I used to work with used to say, well, 50 degrees, 
I put I put turkey in my fridge, and that's well below 50 degrees. That's still mold, and I'm like, yep, microbes are still alive there too. It just takes longer, right? So even at 50 degrees, it still will break down your nitrogen source. It's just at a slower rate. And then the other aspect that comes to mind is what variety are you going to plant next year? Why would you go and put 200 pounds of actual out there and, and not have a variety that's going to utilize that? So that's the other thing is you have to have a plan, and you need to stick to the plan, and that doesn't start in March. That starts in the fall. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about fall application of nitrogen, and that's that's certainly a, a hot-button topic, but fall application of phosphorus, one of the things to think about there, too, is uh, making sure that, you know, just like uh, fall manure applications, that we're injecting and incorporating that phosphorus source so that any of our snow melt doesn't start to move that, uh, either the, the manure or the soil sediment off the surface. I think, you know, when we look at environmental responsibility for phosphorus applications, phosphorus is a positive cation, and it's held by the negative soil charges, the negative soil clay colloids often. And when you look at that, keeping that soil sediment from moving is one of the best ways to keep that phosphorus on your field. And so when we look at fall into winter applications, we do want to be cognizant of of not applying uh, phosphorus on sloped ground uh, especially when it's frozen, whether it's a commercial source like MAP or DAP or it's an organic source like uh, turkey manure or cow manure or beef manure, but making sure that the land that we're applying it to doesn't have an opportunity for runoff because keeping that phosphorus on the ground is not only the better economical thing, it's also a good environmental thing to keep it out of the river. Joel and Kyle, any tips for correcting compaction issues this fall? Yeah, so certainly one of the trends I've seen is these bigger and bigger grain carts. Uh, 500 bushel, 1,000 bushel, can I get 1,500 bushel onto a grain cart? And when you think about that, you know, 80% of that compaction happens on that first pass. So a lot of the damage that you're experiencing in these structures might be shallow compaction. It might wind up being deeper compaction, and it all kind of depends on your soil type and then how wet that soil is. So I, I think one of the biggest challenges for preventing compaction comes in a year where we've got a wet harvest. We've got uh, high axle weights on our fall equipment and then not being able to get the freeze-thaw cycles in the wintertime. And, and I think a lot of times producers might think, uh, geez, it's really cold this winter. That's really breaking up my compaction. A lot of the compaction breakup that's occurring naturally is happening because of the freeze-thaw cycle. So it's those warm, cold, warm, cold days in the springtime in the fall where it's actually breaking up compaction. But Mother Nature takes a long time to do that. And I think back to some of the compaction studies that were done with 5, 10, and 20 ton axle loads over in the the Lamberton Research Center and at a 20 ton axle load one time over those compaction areas those plots for 20 years are still seeing the yield loss of the compaction just experienced in one year. I think the compaction thing is is a serious thing and that's something that the guys can check prior to going out in the field, right? Their study's been done versus uh, 30 psi in a tire versus 12 and the ruts are significantly different and twice as deep just on the difference. So almost a little over half as much. So when you go out and start checking your tire pressure on your combines, your your four-wheel drives, your front-wheel assists, your gravity wagons, whatever you're using, PSI does matter. And if you can go down to the lowest rate on what your tires are, now there's a difference between bias tires and, and radial tires and where stuff should be at, but just know your tire. Obviously, Trax is a different breed, but... What PSI do you set your tracks at? 
You laugh about there. Actually, there's tensioners that are underneath there to create either a tighter track or a looser track, and that could also depict on how much compaction there is. Okay. Uh, when you, you know, the rubber compounds on some of these tires have come a long ways. I, I think that's one of the, the great inventive natures of some of these tire companies. They've actually allowed tire pressures to go down from the, the standard 30 PSI that was out there even 10 years ago. Do you see the lower pressure tires coming on the new tractors or are people upgrading to those as, as they replace tires? Well, there is. There's newer tires that allow for lower pressure. But the other thing, too, is with newer tires, there's deeper tread, right? And so when you have deeper tread, you obviously have more pounds per square inch on that on that lug uh so there's there's some just enormous lugs on some of these brand new tires and i i know what they're there for they're there for for slippage right they're not there for amount of psi reduction so the biggest thing like i said just know your tire is it a bias or is it or is it a radial where is the lowest um and just said it like like i stated don't over uh, inflate thinking while it might have a leak if it has a leak fix it before fall yeah, so growing up on a dairy farm, we uh, we tended to run our tires quite a long ways down the road, so we, we never worry, had to worry too much about deep lugs. There was a lot of really bald tires from all the manure hauling in the cow yards. I don't know if you ever you ever see any bald tires like that. They're all over, and it's usually it's usually on on guys that have a lot of uh, livestock. Right, you're too busy to change a tire, so let's just run it until it blows. <laughs> Or there's a big bubble sticking out the side, right? It was interesting. I went uh, on the old intraweb, Joel, and we did some looking around there. And the uh, Department of Travel and Transportation out of Iowa did a study on the amount of, of weight that is an 875-bushel grain cart and what it does to tar. So they did a study on 7-inch thick tar. And with that amount of weight, they ran it across, and they figured 30 times back and forth with that amount of weight breaks up 7-inch tar. And they took the same exact weight, and they put it across 7 axles, which would be a semi, and you could run it across that same tar at 7 inches and go across it 175,000 times before it starts breaking up that tar. I thought that was absolutely amazing. So people going across their fields in the fall, if you can keep that grain grain cart is as low as possible and don't fill it to the brim it's amazing how much compaction we're doing to our own or our own self yeah, you know ohio state was actually running some grain cart sizing metrics and one of the things i thought was interesting on that is you know grain carts it seems like it's a competition among equipment manufacturers to make a bigger and bigger one and make those tanks huge but a lot of times they were finding that they weren't gaining all that much more incremental efficiency by going from a thousand to a twelve hundred to a fifteen hundred on up that uh, the bottleneck oftentimes in farms is how quickly you can haul it away. And there begins to be this logistics optimization that can go on that when you're six miles from home, maybe you need five semis to haul it away. When you're 10 miles from home, maybe you need upwards of eight or nine semis to be able to haul it away from a 1,000 bushel grain cart. So I always see a lot of times people trying to solve the logistical piece of trying to keep these big class eight, nine combines running by just increasing the size of their grain cart. And some of the studies that Ohio State is doing on uh, on the logistics of that kind of point more towards you know get the semis on the end of the field in and out and uh, and and more of them. I think the other thing we need to think about also, along with PSI and amount of volume we can haul, is trying to figure out exactly do we need to have duels, 
you know, there's a lot of studies out there showing uh, single tires versus duals, and there's a significant difference of less compaction using duals or triples, right? And that's why we're doing it, to get also more traction. But a lot of the tires now, instead of being short and squatty, they're getting larger, taller, and narrower, and you're getting a bigger footprint with a taller, skinnier tire than you would with fat, which... When you look at it and you go, how does that even possibly work? But you're actually spreading out your compaction by having a larger, narrower tire than you are a short, fat tire. So have you have you got any producers, Kyle? I, I know I've run into a couple that uh, that make an attempt at controlled traffic out there where they're trying to, to run tram lines and, and always stay on that to go after that 80% compaction on the first pass and, and not do it other places? Yeah, there's there's a lot of research done in tram lines, right? Trying to run the same, same uh, as you alluded to earlier, 80% of your compaction happens on the first pass, right? And whether you're out there with semis hauling uh, sugar beets out of the field or if you're out there hauling grain out of there, you try to stick to the same path, and, and that way you can manage those acres or those paths versus spreading that across every acre and then trying to do it because your yield reduction is going to sacrifice based on that it's kind of neat i was out riding with a guy the other day and in sugar beet country is there's these uh things that uh you can put on tires it's called tire boss and what they do is when you come into the field this tire boss has this great big air compressor and you pull into the field and it drops your air pressure down to, to little or nothing and then you get a wider footprint you float better across the top and then go get your load and then as you're coming out of the the field driveway back on the road it pumps back your tires back up to to normal pressure and i thought wow that's an interesting conversation and a topic and then i'm like well how long does it take to to pump back up well that takes a long time that's like six miles down the road but we don't get stuck in the field (laughs) so i thought it was interesting going to the concept of a flotation right and spreading that across and also your compaction is going to be much less but people got to be patient to allow that technology to actually inflate your tires back up so you don't run your rims on the ground what are some other practices or issues to keep in mind after crops come out of the ground well so i I think you know after crops come out of the ground it's important to think about how much open soil days are left in the year before the ground freezes over and one of the things you might consider in there is is a cover crop if uh, if you've got a canning crop that kind of came off early uh, keeping that soil in place is object number one but you could also go after you know trying to break up some compaction with something like a tillage radish now a lot of times when i've had producers go after a, a radish type brassica crop they want to see this big giant radish turnip that's in the ground that's three inches wide and a, a lot of the compaction breakup that you get out of that crop is primarily from the taproot that is maybe the size of your pinky that's going down so i, I don't think it's one of those situations where we we need to see a, a two-foot radish in order for it to be successful because that taproot might be going down three four feet so keeping soils in place keeping them covered is a certain important part for high-risk soils and then for geographies where after the crop is off there's a lot of heat units that are available to produce a cover crop. I think the other thing we talk about is figuring out where your compaction is, right? So grab a shovel, grab a probe, go out there and figure out exactly where your your compaction is. And then when you're out there with your ripper or a plow or whatever you decide to use, make sure you're just right underneath that compaction layer. You don't want to be four inches or six inches under. You want to just be right underneath so it gets that shatter. And then that's what's breaking up your compaction. And don't pull it any deeper than you need to because you're only wasting your own fuel. And then sometimes you're bringing the subsoil up that's not productive on top of the topsoil. So knowing where it is 
and if you don't want to use a shovel, go out with a backhoe or a loader tractor or whatever and try to figure it out and, and figure it out per soil type. Yeah, so you know, one of the technologies I've seen that's just started coming to the market is variable rate depth on tillage. And if you're farming in a geography where the soil type, uh, the A horizon, winds up being two, three feet across for the whole 160 flat black field, variable tillage or variable depth tillage really it boggles the mind. But you know, I grew up in uh, southern Wisconsin where the, the soil depth goes from uh, three feet in the bottoms to uh, three inches on the tops of the hills. And I can remember you know, when Dad taught me how to, to soil save and how to rip the field, you know, he'd always say when you go up over that hill, you've got you to pull it out of the ground. Otherwise, you start pulling up bedrock. So I think you know, that's one of those technologies that's out here that adds some of the business behind tillage depth. But certainly, you know, it's one of the new technologies and tools that's out there. Uh, I don't know if you had anybody running any verberate depth tillage. Is that where you, when you're sitting in your Alice Chalmers and you reach over and pull the long levers and then kind of jockey it up as you're spinning? Yeah. Is that variable rate? Is that what that is? Yeah. Or it's when you push the hydraulic lever uh, forward and you've got it in the float position and and, uh, it loses hydraulic pressure. Or I thought maybe if the springs were done more out on the chisel plow, I thought that was variable rate. When it gets a little tougher pulling, it just naturally just raises up. (laughs) You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with our hosts, Kyle Reiner, Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperforth, Ag Technology Applications Lead. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. 